0: Good morning church. The scripture this reading, as uh, scripture this mo- reading this morning comes from 1 Timothy chapter 5 verses 17 through 25. If you would like to use the blue Pew Bible in front of you, you can find the passage on page 993. We'll be reading from 1 Timothy chapter 5 15, oh, sorry, 17 through 25. Would you please rise in honor of this reading of God's holy and inerrant word, starting in verse 17, chapter 5. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
1: Can you pray with me again? father we thank you for this written word and as it has now been read we are asking for you to help us by your spirit to help us to understand and to also have hearts and wills that are willing to obey and so do this for your namesake and for the good of your church we pray this in jesus name amen If you stick with us long enough, you're more than likely to hear me extolling the benefits of preaching straight through books of the Bible. I've said this before, that uh, a passage, for example, like 1 Timothy Chapter 2, verse 12, wouldn't have been a text I would choose to preach on if I were just simply picking passages to preach on every single Sunday. Tackling a passage like that a few weeks ago, where it focuses on the prohibition of women teaching or exercising authority over men in the church, I mean, that kind of a verse is asking for a lot of work and a lot of controversy. But if you just keep working through books of the Bible, you'll eventually have to preach on these kinds of passages. And this morning, I I, I really believe we have another one of those kinds of passages that I just wouldn't have picked if I were randomly choosing passages for you to hear on Sunday. This text, I must admit, is a bit awkward for me to preach because it's fairly self-referential, right? I mean, this passage exhorts church members to give. To their elders, which before I have argued includes those that we call pastors, to give them double honor. And so part of me wonders if maybe I should have scheduled a guest preacher for this week. But then again, the whole premise of the, of the passage this morning is assuming that churches have elders who work hard at preaching the Bible Because it would have been easy for me just to pass along this message to someone else for them to handle. It's going to actually take hard work to labor over a passage like this, to do it and to preach it well, and to preach it well for the glory of God and for the good of this church. And in the end, I want to be an elder who works hard, and I assume you want your elders to work hard. That's what you want of us. And so I'm going to, therefore, unashamedly preach on a text where the main application is about how you ought to treat me and fellow elders of the church. Yes, it is self-referential, but the aim, like in any of our sermons, is to be God-glorifying and Christ-centered. And so as we've been going through First Timothy, focusing on what it means to be a rightly ordered church, our aim in all of these messages has been on Christ. I hope you have noticed this running theme in all of our sermons on wanting to display Jesus well. This book has raised a lot of issues that are related to the church, and that's why we've titled this series Centering on the Church. We've talked about the church's doctrine in chapter 1, the church's worship in chapter 2, the church's leadership in chapter 3, the church's godliness in chapter 4, the church's widows in the early part of chapter 5, and now we're going to talk about caring for the church's elders But I hope you see that talking about all these things related to the church is ultimately about something bigger than the church. It's all about Jesus. The church, we're told in chapter 3, verse 15, is a pillar of the truth, the truth about Jesus. And so just think about when when, when an artist puts a statue on top of a pillar, we know that it's really all about the statue and it's not about the pillar. I mean, the whole point is to show off the statue. And to that end, to show off the statue, the pillar is therefore important. To that end, it's important that you have a good, sturdy, rightly constructed pillar. And I think in the same way, here as a church, we are all about showing off Jesus, making him look great and glorious as the savior of all mankind. And to that end, we want to have a good healthy rightly ordered church so that we can be that pillar that displays Jesus for all the world to see for the world to believe on him and to be saved and this morning i'm going to argue that one way to ensure that we as a church are fulfilling our purpose is to keep a close watch of on our elders the healthiest, this is, this is going to be my argument this morning, that the healthiest of churches are those characterized by a plurality of elders, a team of elders who are doubly honored, graciously protected, impartially disciplined, and carefully assessed. That's the premise this morning. If you want to follow along, uh, there's an outline in your bulletin. And I want to show you these four things within our passage. So if you, start, uh, if you, if you go back and looking, you're looking at the text with me, if you look in verses 17 to 18, Paul starts off by exhorting church members to doubly honor their elders. He just finished telling church members to treat each other as family And especially to honor the widows among them by caring for them materially, financially. And now Paul turns our attention to the elders. And by by that term, he doesn't mean the elderly in the church. He is referring specifically to church leaders, those that he called overseers back in chapter 3, verse 1. Now, I've already discussed in length how the New Testament uses three interchangeable terms to describe the the, the same office of leadership in the church. These these men appointed to the highest level of leadership in a church are called in the New Testament either overseers or elders or pastors. And these are synonymous terms. But I, I realize that in a colloquial sense, we often do make distinctions, particularly between pastors and elders. Because here in our church, the common assumption is that pastors are seminary trained, they are ordained and employed by the church. They're on staff. While elders are not necessarily trained nor ordained, and they're not employed by the church, they're volunteers. And, and those And those distinctions between pastors and elders are fine. It's okay to make those distinctions as long as we maintain one key commonality between them. And I would say that would be the shared responsibility to lead in the church. If you notice in verse 17, Verse 17 also makes a distinction between the men serving in the exact same office while maintaining one key commonality. Look at verse 17 again. It says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So notice with me how Paul assumes that all elders, all men serving in the office of overseer, they all rule. Now, some rule well, and they deserve double honor, and we're going to look at that in a moment. But notice the commonality is that he assumes they all rule. Now, that word there translated as rule was used earlier in chapter 3 when Paul spoke of elders and deacons who manage their households well. So it was translated in that chapter as managing a group of people, in that case, a household. In other letters of Paul, he uses the term to describe overseeing, like in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. It says, Respect those who labor among you and are over you, who are over you in the Lord. That's the same Greek word there. Or it could also be translated as to lead, like in Romans chapter 12, verse 8, where, where it talks about the one who is spiritually gifted to lead. Again, same word there. If, they, if they're gifted to lead, they should lead with zeal. And so what I'm trying to say here is that ruling, as we see in our verse, Ruling is probably too strong of a term, especially if when you hear the word ruling, if it carries a connotation of having final authority over the church. That idea is not necessitated by the Greek word here. Obviously, you see it can be translated in different ways, and I think leading is probably the better translation or even managing, as we saw in chapter 3. And that's why for years now, you've been hearing me advocate from Scripture the idea that churches should be congregationally ruled or congregationally governed while being elder-led. And that's where the church members have the final authority and final responsibility to guard the gospel and to carry out the church's mission under the guidance and leadership of elders. Now, as to what particular structure you put into place in order to facilitate the leadership of your elders, now that, my friends, is a wisdom issue. You're going to have to factor in a lot of things. You have to factor in the context of the church. You're going to have to factor in who and how many qualified elders are even available to serve. And so there is flexibility in implementation. But the fundamental idea is that elders are the ones who ought to lead the church or as the NIV puts it in verse 17, the ones who should direct the affairs of the church. That idea, I hope you see, is firmly rooted in verses just like this one. That's the commonality between elders, or elders and pastors, that they all exercise leadership in the church. But notice Notice there is a distinction between them in verse 17. If they lead well, they should be, as it says, considered worthy of double honor, especially, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And so all elders here are expected to rule. They're expected to lead. But it says here that there are some who labor, who work particularly hard at preaching and teaching. And so you see, there's already a pattern here in the early church of of pointing elders to lead the church together, but among them, some labor and they give more time to preaching and teaching. Now, please hear me, that, that doesn't mean that some elders don't have to be teachers, no, in, in chapter 3, verse 2, it already makes it clear that all elders are expected to be able to teach. That means that they should not only have sound doctrine themselves, but that they should be able to explain sound doctrine to other people and to defend sound doctrine from falsehood and false teachers. That's really the essence of teaching, of biblical teaching, and that's really the baseline qualification for elders as, as stated for us in Titus chapter 1 verse 9, where it says that he, this elder, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So you see that? He has sound doctrine. He can instruct in sound doctrine. He can rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. But I, I would argue, friends, that this category of being able to teach that we find in, in 1 Timothy 3, this category of being able to teach does not imply that the man has the spiritual gift of preaching and teaching. I, I, I would contend that it does not require the gift of preaching and teaching. It's, it's the same way how all Christians— all Christians are called to evangelize, but not all of us are gifted by the Spirit. And so that, that means you can learn to become able to evangelize without having the gift of evangelism. I hope all of us realize if you're a Christian, that's your responsibility, to learn to become able to evangelize. And you can't use the excuse, that, I, I just don't have the gift, so that I don't have to learn how to do that. No. No. We all can learn to be able to evangelize without the gift of evangelism. And I would say in the same way, any man who's going to serve as an elder has to be able to teach the word, and that is something he can learn to do. He can become able to teach. But then there are those equally called to serve as elders, but particularly gifted as preachers and teachers, and they should be the ones who work hard at exercising those spiritual gifts for the good of the church. And We tend to call these spiritually gifted elders the pastors. And I think it's okay to make that distinction. Pastors are typically viewed as seminary trained and, and on staff, which really makes sense if you think about it because preaching God's word is hard and it's time-consuming. And so if someone's going to do a good job at it, it typically requires further education, further training, and also enough time in the week to devote yourself to the craft, which is why eldering or pastoring becomes their primary form of employment. And that leads us to this idea of double honor. It says here, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. That could also be translated as double the respect, double the regard, double the reverence. But, you know, considering the context of what comes next in verse 18, it's clear here that honor is also being used to refer to financial provision or compensation. Look in verse 18. Paul quotes Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 4. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. You see, in those days, oxen were often led in circles on top of a threshing floor, which was typically on top of a hill. And what they wanted to do was to get these heavy beasts to trample on the, the, the wheat sheaves in order to loosen up the kernel from the husk. And the ethical principle here is that anyone who works hard, even a beast, deserves to be compensated. Now, that next verse at the end of uh, verse 18 Uh, the next verse that paul quotes is likely actually not from the old testament but from jesus himself it's probably from the same written source that luke used when when uh, he wrote chapter luke chapter 10 um, verse 7. there Luke is recounting how Jesus sent out the 72 to go from town to town preaching the gospel. And he says that if you come across a man of peace, well, then you just stay at, stay at his house and you eat and drink whatever he provides for you. And he says in Luke 10 verse 7, for the laborer deserves his wages. And so Paul was well aware of what scripture teaches, what Moses teaches, what, what Jesus teaches about honoring those who work hard at preaching and teaching the gospel. Not only here, but also in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul affirms the right for preachers and teachers to receive material provision for, from those who are the beneficiaries of their ministry. So in 1 Corinthians 9, after asserting that apostles like him have a right to receive financial support he writes this i'm reading to you first corinthians nine starting in verse eight paul says do i say these things on human authority does not the law say the same for it is written in the law of moses you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain is it for oxen that god is concerned does he not certainly speak for our sake It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it not too much if we reap material things from you? Verse 13 Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now Paul's point in First Corinthians nine is actually to argue that he personally chose not to make use of that right that he was advocating for. And he did that for the sake of not laying a stumbling block at the feet of the Corinthians who were all too familiar with hucksters and peddlers of false gospels. And so in order to avoid confusion, to not get mixed up with that bunch, Paul chose to not make use of his rights, and he retained his profession as a literal tentmaker. So that means there are legitimate reasons. There could be legitimate reasons for why a church might have no pastors on the payroll, Or why they only have bivocational pastors. There could be reasons for that. But regardless, the point is that it would be cruel to refuse support to hardworking preachers and teachers of the word. Just as it would be cruel to muzzle that ox while it was working so hard to help feed you. Elders who lead well, it says here in our text, are deserving of double honor. And that is Honor in the sense of respect and an honorarium in the sense of financial support. And this applies especially to those who work so hard at preaching and teaching in order to feed you God's word. Honor and an honorarium, that's what makes it double, double honor there. Now, exactly how much you pay a pastor, it's not spelled out in Scripture. That as well is gonna be a wisdom issue for every church to work through. But I hope you see that this is the biblical foundation for why most churches employ their pastors and provide them adequate financial support to meet their needs and their families. Church members, I urge you to consider this the next time you give an offering. Not only is your offering an act of worship directed to God, our great provider? Your offering is an act of honor directed to your elders, especially to those who labor in preaching and teaching. I, I, in the last few months, ever since you know, January, we've been working hard in this congregation to change the way we look at giving. It's not just an administrative duty it's not just about the bottom line church when you give give as a means to honor your chief shepherd as the giver of all good gifts and also as a means to honor all of his under shepherds as givers of good biblical meals that nourish and strengthen your soul it's a way to honor and so besides financial support i encourage you to ask yourself this question how can I personally show honor to my elders who rule well, especially to those who labor in preaching and teaching? What is, what is this one thing you can do this week to honor your shepherds for leading and feeding you well? Well, Paul goes on in our passage to give us one example of how to do that. Give us one practical way to honor them, and that would be to graciously protect our elders. That's our second point here. You see, when you're a leader, you're a magnet for criticism. Now, some of that criticism is likely well-founded and something that we need to hear in order to improve our leadership. But there will always be criticism that is rooted not in truth, but rather in malicious intent in order to slander or to simply gossip. And let's just face it, we love to hear gossip especially when it has to do with leaders when it has to do with public figures i mean just imagine if tabloids no longer reported on the scandalous behavior of public figures imagine if they just simply reported on what you know your average neighbor was was doing in his private life just that lady on the bus you know that guy in the line behind you in the store i mean would anyone really care what they're doing would they sell any copies if that's all they were reporting on? No, tabloids No, that people love to hear about the flaws and the failures of public figures, or at least rumors of that sort. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 8 says this, the words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels that go down into the inner parts of the body. In other words, rumors are like delicious morsels, especially when it's about a public figure, like a leader in the church. And that's why Paul states in verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And that's the biblical mechanism for, for bringing an accusation against anyone. Uh, it was originally found in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. Deuteronomy 19, 15 says this, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only, only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So that's found in the law of Moses. And Jesus himself reinforces this wisdom to to, to rely on witnesses when he goes on and teaches in Matthew chapter 18, verse 16, what you ought to do when a brother or sister in Christ sins against you and refuses to listen to your correction. He says, eventually you would need to bring in two or three witnesses. Now, because it, it could very well be that you're mistaken in your assessment of the situation. It very well could be that you have an implicit bias and you need more eyes on a situation. We need more witnesses. We need more wisdom from other people before we bring any charge against anyone, much less an elder of the church. Let's bring in witnesses. So that's one way church members can honor their elders this is how you can honor us by graciously giving the elders the benefit of the doubt and not being hasty to react when criticism or charges of sin are laid against them we have to realize that there is a lot of truth in the saying that hurt people hurt people hurt people hurt people And so you can expect that shepherds who regularly minister to hurt sheep will at times face the blowback of hurt people who lash out and try to hurt the very ones trying to help them. It just comes with the territory if you're going to pastor people. So church, I urge you to take it upon yourself to protect your leaders from slander and gossip. But now having said that, which is what I do believe verse 19 is teaching. Having said that, I want to be crystal clear here that churches need to be very, very careful not to create a protective ring around their leaders, making them impervious to any charges of sin or error. In the last two months alone, it's so sad that in the last two months we have seen the resignations of high-profile pastors and church leaders due to charges of misconduct. Now, some of these allegations have to do with sexual assault. Some of them have to do with inappropriate behavior towards women under their leadership or inappropriate comments that could reinforce patterns of spousal abuse and, and sexism. And the sad thing I mean, the really sad thing that has damaged the reputation of Christ and his church is not just the inappropriate behavior or the comments, but the alleged pattern of defensiveness by these churches or these institutions that has spanned for years a pattern of defensiveness. They've been uncritically shielding their leaders from criticism. Questioning the pastor, questioning the leader is totally out of bounds. Any form of dissent is quickly shut down, and therefore a culture arises where people are intimidated to speak up even when they see or they hear things that don't seem right. Church, that is not the kind of response that verse 19 is instructing. That is definitely not what Paul had in mind when he tells the church to graciously protect its leaders. Please do not draw that application. We need to make sure that we do not create that kind of a culture. And that leads really to our third point here. Caring for your elders involves doubly honoring them, graciously protecting them, but also, thirdly, impartially disciplining them. Because elders are not infallible. They are not immune to criticism. If a charge of sin is validated by the evidence of two or three witnesses, then a church must act to discipline the elder. And really, they should see that as a form of care. It's the caring, loving parent who actually disciplines his children. The one who never disciplines, the one who never corrects, the one who ignores patterns of sin in his children and does nothing about it is not caring, is not loving his children well. In the same way, elders and pastors are cared for by their congregation when they are disciplined for sin. And that's why Paul writes in verses 20 to 21, look there with me, verse 20, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. And so that means if the charges made against an elder have been confirmed by those witnesses, and if he persists in sin, then he should be publicly rebuked. In the presence of all here, most likely refers to all of the members of the church And the rest, uh, as it refers to here, now that could, uh, the rest who are to stand in fear as a result of all of that is either referring to the other elders or just to the church as a whole. And that would really be instruction that's similar to what we find in Matthew chapter 18, right? So if someone refuses to listen to correction, if they continue to persist in sin, then you eventually, as we're told in Matthew 18, you have to tell it to the church. But, if the individual repents of that sin before you get to that point of telling it to the church, well, then there's no reason to address their sin publicly. And so, in a similar way, if an elder caught in sin repents after being corrected, then there's no need to rebuke him publicly, similar to what you see in Matthew 18. But, and, and, and here's, here's the difference, though. But that doesn't mean... In these situations, when you're dealing with elders, that doesn't mean there's no more need to publicly address his sin. You don't have to rebuke him anymore if he has repented. But if you are dealing with a proven public accusation against a public figure like a pastor, then not addressing the situation publicly could make things worse. Churches have this tendency to keep the sins of their leaders under wraps, justifying their silence by saying, well, there's been a private confession. There's been a private repentance that has taken place. But if you're dealing with a public accusation against a church leader, the wisest recourse is to address the sin publicly. And if there has been genuine repentance, well then celebrate that repentance publicly. To keep things quiet may end up bringing greater disrepute to Christ and to his church. And so this is hard stuff for churches to have to work through. It is so much easier to to simply just avoid disciplining powerful, influential church leaders. And that's, that's why Paul says he's charging us to make these judgments in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the whole host of heaven paul is trying to strike some holy fear in us because what ought to guide our response should not be the fear of a multi-million dollar lawsuit if we do nothing or the fear of backlash from powerful factions in the church if we do something no what should be animating our response is the fear of the lord That is what's gonna keep us from jumping to conclusions and to keep us from prejudging or showing partiality and giving certain people a pass. I think one of the most important things that we can do in our church is to create a culture of healthy critique, a culture of healthy critique where we open up our lives to fellow church members and we invite them to speak hard truths into our lives church let's create a culture where leaders are also never set on a pedestal where they become immune to criticism and leaders all of you who are leaders in some capacity let's not justify the tendency to withdraw from our people assuming that we can't share our struggles with them that creates a dangerous situation where there's low accountability for us leaders And then there's no easy avenue to bring correction whenever it's needed. Let's not draw away. Let's engage the people we're leading. But you know, in the end, church, in the end, the best way to avoid all of this messiness is to be extremely careful with whom you appoint to the eldership in the very first place. We need to pay more careful attention to carefully assessing our elders. That's our last point. And the essence, really, of Paul's advice here at the end of the chap- chapter. Look at verse 22. He says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourselves pure. The laying on of hands there is likely referring to the initial appointment or the ordination of elders. He's saying, don't rush a man into the office of elder. Time and relational knowledge. Time and relational knowledge are needed. If we don't really know a man, if we don't really know the state of his relationship with God and with his family, then we must not be hasty to make him an elder. Give it time. Paul warns that whoever appoints the unqualified elder, whether it's Timothy or whether it's us as a congregation, if that elder falls, then we take part in his sin. The church shares a responsibility, a degree of responsibility for the failure of its leaders. And that should really sober us, should make us very, very cautious and careful in choosing elders. elders. But at the same time, it shouldn't cripple us from the task. It shouldn't stop us from appointing elders. Because if you're careful, if you're doing all that is humanly possible to assess their life and doctrine, and if they still prove faithless, your hands are clean as a church. You won't take part in their sins if you are doing what it takes to carefully assess their life and doctrine. Now, I know in verse 23, Paul seems to go off topic. That's why even translators put this verse in, uh, in parentheses. He tells Timothy to no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and for your frequent ailments. And commentators think that Paul probably brought up this point. He probably brought up the permissiveness of, of drinking a little wine because... The sins of the particular elders that Timothy didn't want to take part in, their sins most likely involved the misuse of wine. And so Timothy was trying to keep himself pure, but Paul is reminding him that a little wine might benefit his health. So that's the most likely explanation of where this verse comes from in the argument. But in the end, I don't think we should be making too much of this little brief excursus here and to draw large, you know, theologies of of drinking or whatever out of this verse. But that's likely the reason why he mentions that in verse 23. In verse 24, though, Paul goes back to his focus on rightly assessing potential elders. And he says, in verse 24, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. And what I think he means here is that for some men, their sins are so apparent that it's obvious that they're unfit to serve as elders. But for others, It's not as apparent until later on, until after you do some careful examination. And so that's why he says, you must not be hasty to lay on those hands. Carefully examine because their sins may not be as apparent. But then he flips it around for us in verse 25. Look there. In 25 he says, so also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden paul is saying that for some men it is very obvious that they are fit to serve as elders but at the same time for others they may not look the part but with enough time and with careful examination they might actually prove to be well qualified elders and so it's important that we're not quick to rule anyone out but in the end the point is, we've got to be patient. We have to be careful in our approach to assessing potential elders. If we take the necessary time and care in all of the beginning stages, we are going to save ourselves as a church a load of trouble, and we're more likely to keep the name of Christ and his church from falling into disrepute. And so, church, I ask you to please pray. Pray for your leaders. Pray for your church council as we are actually currently in the process of assessing potential elders. We need godly wisdom. We need your prayers right now. But church, let me just be clear here. The fact is, we will never find a perfect elder. But that's okay. Because we don't need a perfect elder. We need a perfect savior. We don't need perfect pastors. We have in Christ a perfect pastor, a perfect shepherd who never fails, who never falls into disrepute. Because the fact is, we have all fallen short. We have all failed and brought shame to our Lord, shame and disrepute to our maker. All of us, friends, we all deserve death. We deserve wrath. We deserve punishment of an eternal nature. But Jesus came and lived and died and rose again as our perfect savior, our perfect substitute. He, my friends, is all you need to be right with God. Turning to Jesus, trusting in Jesus, you can be right with God. And so that's why we don't need perfect pastors and elders. We just need godly ones. We need men who know their sin, who hate their sin, and know what their sins deserve. But these are also men who know Jesus intimately as their Lord and Savior, who have drunk deeply of his mercy and grace, and who are committed to leading other sheep to go and drink from the same fountain and follow the same shepherd. That's what a good elder, what a good pastor looks like. That's what they do. So may God grant us more for the praise of his name and the good of his church. Let me pray for us. Father, please raise up more elders and pastors from among us that this church may continue to serve you faithfully, to do your will here in the city of Houston, continually making God-loving, compassionate disciples in the name of Jesus. Do this work among us to raise up these leaders among us oh lord for your glory for the good of your gospel
0: in jesus name amen let's rise as we respond